Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things Mecha-chan. I am your host, Ignis Maddox, and here at Mecha Nations, we mourn for Mecha-chan. I'm Steven Hero. You guys should really read some Ursula Le Guin. I'm PMC Trilogy, and I do not like green eggs and hair. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Emperor Palpatine. The dead uh, speak. Yeah, I, the I, dead also fuck. I want to ask you, why did you decide to ruin Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> you fuck? Well, you know... Oh, hello? Hello. Does someone mention ruining Star Wars? No. Get back. Get back. Away. Away with ye. Uh, but so, yes, PMC, how are you doing? Yeah, are you so right? the, the illness that I had at, during our last record... Uh, I'm actually feeling a lot better. Like I feel much more energetic. Right. I'm here. I'm attentive than I was during the last record. But for whatever reason, on the way out, this illness has just cratered my voice okay. for some reason. It doesn't actually hurt too much to talk like this. So right. I'm not like I am recording this podcast. I wouldn't just like murder myself to record <laughs> a podcast about mecha anime. Right. Um, <laughs> but that is that is where I am. Uh, but I did. It's funny. So I had mentioned last week that I did Armored Core I, 1. I was going to say, was this Armored Core sort of like with its last breath, I Chris Zoidberg, but for your voice a little bit? A, a little bit. Um, <laughs> I really didn't do that much streaming this week. You know, usually I do a lot of uh, video game streaming during the week and did not do that much. But I did pop on for like an hour one night this week because uh, previously I had discussed doing the the any percent, no fail mission, no out of bounds category yeah, for no Armored boob. Core 1. And uh, this week, I decided to do the straight any percent category. And I don't... Did you, either of you guys have an opportunity to catch that? The one night you streamed, I believe um, uh, Kreia was doing her thing. Oh, and so I, I might have missed it for that's that fair. reason. That's but, fair. But, I've caught your other streams. Not any this week, though. Okay. Yeah. So with this category, you're able... The, the way it works is that Armored Core, the, the single player, has a structure of... 37 missions in a yeah i made that joke last time sorry <laughs> the first mission is required you do the first mission the next 33 you can start and then immediately abort yes 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 some yes. of them have cash advances you pocket the advances <laughs> quit the job anyway <laughs> thanks employer absolutely and then the last three you have to do you must do and so the route, of course, is that you do you, you do the first mission, you abort 33. Along the way, you do pick up two parts. Like, there are hidden parts and levels that you can pick up. Okay. Mostly, one of them you use, one of them you sell for cash. And then you get to the end. And what's great about this is that the last three missions, you're able to solve two of them using Out of Bounds. One of them, based on the fact that space is a closed loop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> imagine, imagine for good line. Imagine for me, like the Death Star cannon. Yes. And what if the way to destroy the Death Star cannon were to fly into the mouth of the cannon, and at the back of a long tunnel, mm -hmm. there is something on the wall that is like the heart of the Death Star cannon. Okay. Okay. And you just and you don't want to blow up the whole Death Star. You just want to destroy the cannon because really the cannon is problematic. Sure. Yeah. Without a doubt, <laughs> the cannon is problematic. The cannon is problematic. And uh, and so ordinarily the way you would do this mission in Armored Core One with the missions in Armored Core the name of the cannon is Justice. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. and the missions destroy Justice. Mm -hmm. Quotations. <laughs> okay. And you would you would have to destroy these like shields in mm. the interior of the barrel of the cannon, and then you get to the end of the tunnel. 
and you would destroy that and thing on the wall. Justice. Okay. And at the end, you'll be win. What we do is we get a very big cannon of our own that has a big blast radius. Uh-huh. We turn around and face out into space. We face <laughs> we space justice. Okay. We we sit down on the ground. We pull our big cannon out. It like unfolds. It's uh-huh. a big grenade launcher. Uh-huh. And we shoot three shots into space. Uh-huh. Because space is a closed loop, the shots hit the edge of space, the far edge of space, and the blast radius wraps around through space yes. because space okay. is a closed loop. Okay. And it destroys the object at the opposite end of the tunnel. So when you say space is a closed loop, what you're describing is the the a Pac-Man effect where if you if you attack or leave one end of the screen, it, it comes from the other end. That's right. That's exactly That's what's exactly occurring. right. This is okay. some like Matthew McConaughey, my, Matthew McConaughey, True Detective season one shit here. <laughs> space is a closed loop. How, how was this murder committed? Well, space is a closed loop, officer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, man. Maybe that meme will enter the Twitter feed this week. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. And then the other stuff is just that um, you, there is an out-of-bounds method. It requires specific arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a specific arm part, you just take a step to the right, take a step to the left. You do a little jig back, and then you just fall through the floor. Yep. That's usually yeah. and uh, and you, so you use that to get to where you need to go, um, and it makes the, the last two missions very quick. That you're able to just just kind of push through them very quickly, right? Um, but yeah, so I I, uh, I was also playing it on the optimal platform, which is PSTV. It's the fastest loads for PlayStation One games that are officially available on mm-hmm. PSTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much crushed that, unlike my first night. So nice. for speedrun.com, and I, I want to emphasize for speedrun.com because speedrun.com has like mixed uptake from Japanese users, and that's where a lot of armored core speedrunning has happened. Right. So I sense. have the top times on speedrun.com. I don't really know if those are truly the top times because it's hard for me to search yeah. Nico Nico right. or even just Japanese language on YouTube. Mm. You know, it's it's difficult to search. So I think there may be some there could be higher times out there. Speedrun.com, I have the top times on there right now. Right. In general, is there a big speedrunning community in Japan? For certain games. Big, I guess it would depend on what you mean by big. Like, as far as, like, I would say it's a it's comparable to the speedrunning scene here, is what I would say. Like, yeah. similar fan favorites, like Super Mario 64. Uh, yeah, I mean, some, some of the truly big ones. Yeah, I mean, Super Mario 64, of course, is, yeah. is big. Um, I would say, you know, but also it diverges in some of the ways that you might expect. Right. Dragon Quest speedrunning, much bigger in yeah. Japan than it is in America. Yeah, there's, there's less of the stuff that was popular here. Like, I, I bet you there were probably not as many Japanese Sonic Adventure 2 battle runners as compared to, like... <laughs> yeah. And there's also... the I think the most interesting differences are differences in sort of format or convention. Uh, Japanese timing often prefers console power on yeah. to end of credits. Interesting. So a lot of extra time there that yeah. most American runners wouldn't tolerate because they're like, this doesn't matter. Uh, and also, similarly... Turbo has always been accepted in Japanese RPG speedrunning in Japan in a way that it's never been accepted, hmm. like as a default thing. You know, I, I the Turbo conversation is something that's really been churning a lot in JRPG speedrunning in North America and Europe the past few years because people are getting older and they're realizing that wait a second, mashing text for nine hours isn't that great, right? Yeah. You know, so people are starting to. to kind of come around how now they feel they feel about that but but apparently it was always just sort of like well yeah of course we're gonna use turbo like yeah have you seen how many text boxes are in xenogears like are you kidding me like come on 
Yeah, this is this is that whole uh, liminal space of speed running sort of situation of like, well, like how, how much are, are we going to really like put people in a box about this thing? Like the whole the whole exercise is about resisting the box, so to speak. But you know that's 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 that growing pain sort of situation that that speed running seems to be constantly finding itself in. Not finding itself in, but as more people enter the scene, they're just more personalities start to demand different sorts of spaces, and that can end up with some some stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know that's that's good, right? Because it's like growth, right? And, right. And and hopefully the just best outcomes sort of yeah. Are, and also, you know, I think with any sort of grassroots community space, you need to develop community practices for sorting those things out. Like that's right. that's that is vital to a healthy community and you you can't you can't leave that stuff sitting because it's like whatever if your conflict is about uh you know, is turbo okay? But, you know, if you're also not able to deal with conflicts about much more substantive issues, like is harassment okay? Right, right. You know, that's really important to deal with. Right. Yeah, I just, it's one of those interesting things where, uh, where there's a less demonstrable, like, skill involved. Like, what we're talking about here is menuing. And menuing obviously is a skill, right? Where Absolutely. You're, you're memorizing the, the right. amount of time and input will take to move a cursor. And yeah, both deciding what the optimal menu is and then doing it as quickly as possible. Right, right exactly. Um, but uh, you can understand why someone who is not versed would resist that sort of explanation for that sort of thing and why then the turbo conversation might pop up. But also, like, I get it. I don't. I don't fucking give a shit. Like, you can press in, but but I'm not someone who's concerned about maintaining the integrity of JRPG speedrunning, right? Like, I don't give. I don't give a fuck. But you know, yeah, yeah I can yeah. see how someone might feel strongly about this one way or the other. Steven Hero, do you have? Uh, are Are you done? PMC? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'll, well, I was going to ask you. Do you feel that Kreia is concerned of maintaining the integrity of the Force? <laughs> well, I think in a way she is. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> segue. <laughs> I think in a way she is. I, I think that that what she's concerned about. I don't know. How much should I talk about this? Because the, I I do have feelings. I think it, 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 I wish that Obsidian could somehow like force ah, all of <laughs> Star Wars media to sort of like pick up like here I we dropped this please pick this up in a way that that Ryan Johnson was like here I dropped this please pick this up and JJ said no no <laughs> but um uh I, I mean like to answer that question seriously I think yes mm. I think um uh in in Night's Old Republic 2 there is a seminal moment where you have completed your your Bioware quest of going to four or five different themed locations and finding the thing, you know, whatever that is, whether it's the treaties or the Star Forge or in this case some some Jedi Jedi masters who have who have gone into hiding due to being assassinated by Sith people when in when force related places gather. So you go and you do that and you gather them. And these all happen to be the people who also exiled your main character. KOTOR 2 does this really interesting thing where um, it is uh, it does not inform you about your character's backstory. The way that you fill that out is through dialogue choices. And so whatever, therefore, you choose in the dialogue that's offered to you is implicitly true about your character. And in a way that is is fun because like it, it is forcing the player... 
I mean, unless you're just someone who just doesn't do this. It's forcing the player to make role-playing choices about their exile. Uh, you know, Mitra Surik is the canon name for the exile. I believe the exile is usually... Because this is a, a CRPG, you, you can choose the gender of the main character mm. that you play as. Um, but I think the canon identity of, of me, I mean, fuck Star Wars canon, obviously, but. Yeah, the know. canon is problematic in more ways than one. Yeah, um, but, uh, the, in this moment where you've gathered these, these Jedi guys, they've, they are sort of, uh, trying to, in the Jedi Council way, make sense of the events of the game. And, and something that the game is very clearly trying to, uh, bring into the player's attention is the the idea of perspective like who who is saying what and why would they say that like kotor 2 is concerned with that because kotor 1 and 2 and and i don't know how much the boss fight book goes into this i i would say it would probably be uh not politically wise to go into this too much but kotor 1 and 2 definitely seem to have taken it upon themselves to tell the stories that the prequels were concerned with in a way that makes sense, right? Like, I think, would it be unfair to say that the prequels' main concern ended up being what is the, like, responsibility of a a, a group like the Jedi in a situation like the the Clone Wars, right? Like, what well, if you are super people who are aligned with a political group and that political group is in a conflict that you could aid in that might save lives. What is your responsibility, right? And, you know, I, I'm speaking... At, I know, uh, Stephen, here, you haven't played Knights of the Republic, but one of the, the core things Knights of the Republic is concerned with is the Mandalorian Wars, which mm-hmm. ends up being the sort of stand-in for the Clone Wars as a con- conflict, right? And that was the... It, it's exactly the same situation where some Jedi chose to go fight in the Mandalorian Wars with the idea of ending the conflict more quickly with mm-hmm. their superpowers and some jedi were like no 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 um and what kotor 2 is is picking up on is less the like because kotor 1 is is kind of myopic about it where it's like uh it it is morally justifiable to go fight in the mandalorian wars because the mandalorians were you know doing their mandalorian best (laughs) you know doing that thing they love to do (laughs) um and knights of the republic 2 wants to kind of like well let's can we can we dig this a little further? Can we dig a little bit further into the motivations of the the two people at the head of this, and maybe what they were thinking, and and whether or not these like Knights of Republic Two is way more willing to explicitly ask, like, is it okay for so much of the universe and so much of what ends up happening to be at the behest of like one or two people, right? Like, is that actually? a thing that we should, like, continents to continue. And this is, like, the thing that kind of Kreia is sort of kind mm-hmm. of yeah, pushing right. at. I know I'm talking about a lot of things here, um, but Knights of the Republic 2, to answer the question in the long term, is I think Kreia does want to maintain the integrity of the Force in the way that we saw Cranky Luke Skywalker wanted to maintain it. One of the things Cranky Luke Skywalker talks about in The Last Jedi is the idea that there isn't really a a light side or a dark side there's just the force and i think this is very much the the angle that that Kreia is trying to push that this the way that this has been stratified by these two different groups the jedi and the sith has is the real conflict and not anything inherent to these to this 
yeah, thing, yeah. right? And and th- that's what's interesting about Knights of the Republic too. But it, it, you know, it's one of those things that that the prequels do get here, right? Of like war is an inherently corrupting force, and the Jedi joining the conflict makes it so that Palpatine won, regardless. But these the movies are bad at telling the story, so that's not what you walk away from with, right? right? right. Like th- that's fair to say. You would say. Um, but yeah, Knights Republic 2 continues to be good. Uh, also watch the other Star franchise. Uh, it's 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 Ignis's turn to, to talk about Star Trek, actually. Ooh. Because Star Trek Picard has premiered. Uh, I was not enthused to go watch it, to be honest. I'll be honest. I am, um, uh, you know... I, I I'm not big on TNG. I've seen a lot of it, and I know it really well. I I, I know I've talked about it pretty extensively on on this show, but it's not really my, you know, it's it's not really my Star Trek. Uh, I'm I'm a D I'm a Niner, I'm a DS9 guy. Um, but even I am not like you know as much as I like DS9 that it it's not perfect either. Like it, it was run by the same guys as as TNG in a lot of ways, so has a lot of the same problems, and sometimes it has its own. Its own problems. I'm looking at you every Mirror Universe episode. But Star Trek Picard is... I I was afraid of it. I was afraid of it largely playing off of things that would make me feel bad for being a fan of a franchise. Something... I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to make anybody mad. But um, uh, uh, Star Wars has... has, uh, Part of the reason I'm going through older Star Wars stuff is is because uh, the the Star Wars has made me feel feel dumb for being into a, a franchise. I know that's not you know that's nobody's fault but mine. That feeling of mine. I'm not blaming anyone for it necessarily, but part of the reason I was digging into Knights of the Republic two was to try and <laughs> remind myself that yes, th- there is space here for writing. <laughs> <laughs> These things exist. Um, but in any case, uh, I was worried about Picard. I, I'm very sensitive now to prestige flashing in front of you and, and that really preventing you from being able to like understand what's happening, really. Um, but uh, Star Trek Picard, it, at least the first episode, is a, is a pretty intriguing 40 minutes that is creating a sense of a uh, mystery novel set in a TNG timeline, which I'm down for. I'm good for that. Uh, it, it's a it's a Xenosaga plot. It seems to be concerned with realians, uh, which is very very fun for me. Um, if none of those words mean anything to you, then that's good. That means I won't be able to spoil any of Picard for you. You don't. Uh, they didn't do any any uh, uh, juicy cameos in the first step, really, um, because uh, the cameo that that is featured is a plot specific one. It deals specifically with data, and so Brent Spiner is of course featured. It appears to be a sequel to Star Trek Nemesis, and I say that with trepidation in my heart. I don't want to get too nerdy about this because it's not that important, but they did create sequel material to Star Trek Nemesis that served as a prequel to Star Trek the Star Trek uh directed by JJ Abrams uh I I to to flat, to recap very quickly there was an event in the main Star Trek universe that caused a time thing that that um the antagonist for that Star Trek film f- fell into and and that's why the new Star Trek timeline happened the Star Trek Picard show 
is singularly concerned with that thing that caused the time thing to happen, but takes place 20 years after that event. There were some comics that happened that were prequels to the the J.J. Abrams Star Trek film that established that Data at the end of Star Trek Nemesis sacrifices his life. And it is implied at the end of Star Trek Nemesis that they're going to download Data's bullshit into Data's brother B4. In the Star Trek comic that is a prequel to the Star Trek film by J.J. Abrams, it is shown that Data has already been downloaded into B4 and it's just Data again in B4's body, basically. Star Trek Picard has sort of like... You know, in a way that's not, like, surprising. They do this all the time. Just It's just sort of, like, rolled that back a little bit, and it's just like, well, no, never mind. That didn't happen. It's only confusing for someone like me who has kept in touch with that stuff, right? It, it definitely assumes that you're not someone who's reading ancillary material, although I'm not sure how you would know about uh, Picard is living on the, 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 the Picard vineyard, of course, and he has, like, Romulan helpers who live with him. Who seem nice. I like them. Um, but they never point out that they're Romulans. In fact, I don't actually know for sure. They are. Other than the the male Romulan has has eyebrows that are super Romulan. Which sounds racist, but if you see <laughs> it's a it's a makeup job that I'm commenting on. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is an Android suplex. Extremely good. Star Trek action has improved. Uh, no one did this move, which I was disappointed about. Uh, Note that Ignis is swinging his hands as if holding I, a sword. I'm intertwining my my hands like it, like a f- two fists together and mimicking like I'm hitting someone in the back with both of them in a way that seems to knock everyone out in Star Trek, but would hurt a lot if you did it. Um, it's good. It's free on on YouTube for right now. Um, probably by the time this episode comes out, it will not be free on YouTube anymore. It would be my guess. But uh, it wasn't what I expected. I expected it to be much more preachy. I expected it to... And, and when I say preachy, I mean that in a poorly written way. Yeah. I, I want Star Trek to be preachy. I want it to... to I want it to be the DS9 episode Paradise. Uh, do you remember how that episode ends? Like, every episode of Star Trek should be like that. Yeah. Where Guess it, what? There are consequences, it, yeah. and they suck forever. And they suck um, but uh, Stephen Hero, did you have any uh, Eddie Marin that you wanted to? I get a comment on Picard. I saw, I've seen the first two episodes. I really the show is carried by Patrick Stewart's performance. Essentially, my theorizing is that Patrick Stewart was given a pitch that he liked, and he also felt politically motivated to comment in some way on what's going on in the world around him, particularly through Brexit and mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to throw his hat into the ring one last time. Now, when, historically, when Patrick Stewart gets involved, it's usually he likes Picard to be very action-focused, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard through the interwebs that he is very that he has pushed it several times You know, for those set-piece action scenes in Nemesis and Insurrection. I would say that that was of a time. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if that is a thing that like I think almost certainly that was personality based where I think that probably Patrick Stewart at that time wasn't receiving the sort of attention he probably would have liked for the role of Picard. I, I think that probably he has seen he's 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 a fun person uh, and a silly man, uh, and I and I bet you probably he is seen as more erudite than he would would prefer to and i think this is just a thing that if you if you're someone who is uh practiced as a shakespeare 
performer that this probably happens to you a lot, right? Where people like have an idea of someone who studies and performs Shakespeare. I don't know if this is something that he would maintain. I would be very surprised to learn that like like he there were two things that he pushed a lot during TNG and the, and the movie specifically. He wanted to do his own fighting and he wanted to do his own fucking. Those were the two things he wanted to do. Um and I born born in a ditch, raised in a cave. <laughs> yeah, right. Trucking and fucking is all I crave. <laughs> Signed, Picard. <laughs> I mean, no lies detected. I could understand that. Well, find that. And and like in and famously in Nemesis, there was that whole uh, dune buggy thing, and and I think that had more to do with just like star, not like star power, like we would refer to, like now, like fucking like Robert Downey Jr. contract bullshit or what have you. But like, I, I you know, it was. Uh, I think he's uh, he was a producer on it, or Brent Spiner was a producer on it, and it was just one of those things that you know. When the 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 movie isn't gonna happen without you, you can just be in the do buggy if you want. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't. Think you ever see is... that mystery? Is not to go off topic. The mystery science theater episode, the Dune buggy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's that called? Like Goldbug or something? Was, gold? No, it's not Goldbug. Gold that's, that's a podcast reference. <laughs> no, that's, and that's just what you'll be from now <laughs> on. Gold dancer or something. Anyway, <laughs> shit piece. Shit piece. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I appreciated the the restraint. On. Yeah, that's why I was he- initially, as we brought that up, is I was initially hesitant given how creatively involved Patrick Stewart is and was of the project. Something I want to shout out, because it's difficult to appreciate this from the ads and just from the idea of it. The set design's really, really good. Yeah. There's a lot of times you look at a thing and you'll be like, oh yeah, it's 20 years out from a TNG future. Or you'll see a tech that that worked on TNG and now we have better special effects technology for, for television. You'll be like, oh yeah. And and there's that's surprisingly enjoyable. I'm not the sort of person who gives a shit about this. We'll talk about this in Gurn Lagan today. Like I don't need to see the tech work and be like, yes, that looks like a thing that would function like that. <laughs> but you know, it, it it was it surprised me how much I uh, enjoyed being in the the TNG world. It's nice to see the t- timeline ex- extended. I like. I think the show shines in its first two episodes, focusing on Picard as like an aging moralist who has to look back at his own involvement with the institution that perhaps is getting increasingly more corrupt or was corrupt from the start. People are complaining that the political allegory is too on the nose. It's always pretty on the nose in Star Trek to begin with, especially with TNG. I'm speaking from TNG experience. Oh, yeah. Extraordinarily. But that is part and parcel of Star Trek, even going back to to, uh, the original series as well. Like, extraordinarily, like, on the nose, like... Your uh, alien creatures that are half with their faces oh, sure. half black. Let half that be white. your last battlefield, of course. Yeah, like, and I can understand some of the eye rolliness with like the synths or the isolationist tendencies of the um, fucking Federation. But I think it's fine. I think I'm glad they're holding the Federation to task and uh, do it smartly as of the first two episodes. To explain what we're talking about here, very very quickly, Romulus blew up. And the Federation agreed to help ferry the living Romulans to a safe place, right? And they they had dedicated a bunch of resources to this, and then suddenly a bunch of synthetic people attacked Mars and blew up the the Mars place where we built spaceships. Yeah, and these synths are nowhere near as advanced as Data. Um, and now. Uh, uh, one, there was a ban on synthetic humanoids. Period. And two. Uh, the 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 uh, efforts to ferry Ramulans from the floating rocks of Romulus to somewhere else ceased, you know, due to this thing. 
Um, which makes me never mind. I don't want to talk about this. I got all these called shots that I'm definitely going to make from just the first episode. This is a Tal Shiar pl- plot that went bad, right? Either yeah. that or it's a lore thing. Yeah, because that's that's like the second episode is just one huge lore dump. Yeah. When I say lore, I mean Data's brother lore. No, no, like lore isn't like an exposition dump. Lore has yet to be brought up into the show. I'm almost certain yeah. this is it, it is a Tal Shiar plot that went bad in yes. the in the worst timing that there was some Romulan who was in in, in the synthetic facility and programmed the the synthetics go rad and, and attack Mars, but the timing was way off. Or it was a Nero situation in that Romulan was like, ah, I'm gonna get it was the Federation's fault that Romulus blew up and and then it was irony that that do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there, it's going to be one You're of those on the two right things. tracks. Yeah. Have, and the second episode only touches upon that briefly. The where I think the show falters somewhat is the action set pieces really don't do it for me. The conspiracy ness of it is I don't know hit, hit or miss. But there is a central mystery which I at least am engaged with. There's yes. like a MacGuffin which is keeping me going. So there's that. I'm, I'm excited to see where the show takes us. There's a few cameos I'm hotly anticipating. I know I shouldn't. I know when a sequel show comes out. The more self-referential is, the worse it usually is, but I don't fucking care. There's a few interactions I'm looking forward to seeing. I, I said this before, and I'll say it again. I would much prefer this to be a, a line of cameos where Sir Patrick Stewart it walks up and shakes the hand, and it's like, hello, Worf. Hello, Dax. Hello, Bashir. Especially, like... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, but where I'm hoping... like This is probably going to run three seasons. It's already been renewed for a second season. Patrick Stewart has hindered he would like to see this go three seasons. He's also in his early 80s, so you know we're all, we're all dying, but he is, his biological clock is ticking. I would hope when Picard ends, it brings us to the point in the future where we can now finally test the limits of Star Trek and perhaps bring it into a new age, but also like thoroughly reflecting back on the past and like bringing like, quote-unquote classic Trek into a new form, if that makes any sense. Uh, I mean, I think... Like a 2025 equivalent of DS9 or TNG. Uh, I think the, the only way we're going to do that is if we we do new Trek. Yes, new Trek exactly that, what I mean. That, that's unlinked to some that's, kind of other... That's not so heavily tethered to the past, but also exudes that spirit that used to be there. I think the only way to do that, though, is to uh, either reckon with the realities of the sort of like the uh, colonialism for fun that Star Trek sort of represents or ignoring it, which yeah. I don't think the the ignoring it will work anymore, right? I, I think that's kind of the 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 rub, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, can, I, you know, I would love to stall some more <laughs> so we don't have to talk about... I will say my ideal Picard Trek plot is just him on the vineyard grappling with the sins of his past. That would That's be my the preference. Episode. Just like how I love Last Jedi, if it was just the island with Luke and Rey, like some Terrence Malick bullshit, that mm-hmm. would have been my ideal sh- film. My only, the only thing I would say, or what, the last thing I would compliment, is that I, did, I do like the emphasis on Picard as a historian and how his yes. perspective is, is that of, you know, I've been, I, I know some stories of things that go bad. And I've been around for things that go bad. I like that that play of it. Um, but yes, it is a uh, it is better than I thought. Uh, it was worth your time if you check it out for free on the YouTube's. I don't know if you should fucking pay CBS to see the rest of it. I don't know. If, ask your friends. See if someone you know has has a password or a VPN and it's just p- pirating it. And w- watch it that way if you like. I don't know. I'm never gonna get. We're not getting that CBS money. So whatever. Fuck off, CBS. 
Speaking CBS, of, we will we will take your money. We will if you want to, but you're not gonna. Was, who who owns uh, who's making the uh, the the Sesame Street Mecca crossover? Is when's that? Who Sesame HBO? Street? HBO. HBO is that who's doing that? Okay, That's I don't funny. know if HBO is 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 owned. By, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't is. know. I think I don't Warner know. has a significant stake. I mean, there's only like three corporations. And yeah, they all own each other. Exactly. So whatever. <laughs> Who gives a shit? Let's, let's go ass first into this next episode, <laughs> yeah, though. For real? Yeah. Let us, let us put our face near the the anus yeah. of of Gurren Lagann. Breathe, breathe, breathe deeply. deeply. An appropriate way to start. Yeah, because here we have we are at episode four of Tengen Tapa Gurren Lagann. Having lots of faces doesn't make you great. So that's episode four's title. Also, the synopsis. Yeah, for real. I okay. Uh, if I'm gonna draw back the curtain a little bit, audience, I was. This is the hardest I've ever had writing a summary for an episode of anything, except for Gundam Wing. I was about to say, wait a second, Gundam Wing. Though <laughs> I guess that's not true because Gundam Wing it's been a struggle sometimes. Simone, Kamina, Yoko, and Liron continue to travel together, and Kamina has decided to train Simone in the philosophy of transformation. Meanwhile, we are introduced to Kitan and his family, who are a group of Beastman hunters who have developed something akin to grenades to help them com- combat the gunmen. Uh, after some shenanigans, we learn they are hunting a group of Beastmen who reveal themselves. After more tomfoolery and misunderstandings, Simone is able to fulfill Kamina's arbitrary wishes, and they combine into Gorn Lagan, defeating the Beastmen. Yeah. That's that's all I got. <laughs> that's, that's, no, I mean, that's right. You did it. That's, that's, that's all we got here. I would love this to be the shortest time we've spent <laughs> discussing an episode. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't have too many critical yeah, insights. We I, should start with the style change. Change? Okay. Well, I, I wanted to ask about this. I'm not usually the sort of guy who's like, who notices animation quality dropped or something. Because right. for me, watching it, usually I, if, if something changes visibly, I would rather attribute it to an intentional style change to a choice than yeah. to be like. Well, the animators must have been lazy. You know, like I'm not going to do that shit. And so here I was wondering, how did you guys feel about it? Because there were some shots where the, it felt like a stylistic choice. Like when um, the Black Brother and Common are in, the, in each other's faces. Yes. I, I think that looks great. I, really, I like the way that looks. But there's other points, especially a lot of time when you're looking at uh, faces like head on. Like, Kamina's face, whenever you look at him head-on this episode, it seems, like, really weird to me. Well, so, um, I think what was what, what we're seeing here is less a, a situation of animators and more a situation of a director. Yeah, I it was Samu Kobayashi, who the people from Gainax knew from Madhouse. He's known for... He's a Madhouse guy? Yeah. I've been betrayed! Anyway, sorry, keep going. <laughs> no, but one thing I felt about is, I agree with PMC, I don't usually gravitate to those very visceral reactions. I sometimes notice, and I usually attribute it to different animation houses. Maybe the production time was less, uh, budget issues, which historically has happened with quite a few Gynax shows. But I couldn't shake the fact that it did exude a certain, I'm not going to say cheapness, but I already said it, but also a, like a two-dimensionality, like a certain like doodles in a notebook at times for well, me. Well, so for me... Uh, it felt stiffer. I could forgive the choices made if also... It wasn't the worst written episode by like a country mile. Like it is, it is a weird peek into a universe where Gurren Lagann is. I think the show that people sometimes believe it to be, where it is like a comedy focused on kind of a lull random sort of. 
situation. Yeah, so this is going to be my, my big takeaway from this episode. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we learned about in our history of Gordon Lagan episode was that Emeshi was influenced by like 90s Western yeah. comedy shows, you know, explicitly South Park. But I feel like you can also see like Ren and Stimpy and well, stuff like even that. Even like Looney here. Tunes too. With the, right. I don't know if that was only included in the dub, but the, that's all. But that's but, all but I think to on. me the the sort of like violent, gross way, and I, I use violent in like a cartoony sense, y- but yeah. like there's a there's a gross violence to you know Buddha ripping his own ass off. <laughs> It's very Western. It, right? Like, that That to me, you know, like, and, and like, you know, if that works for you, but I'm going to be honest, my whole life, I haven't liked that shit in Ren's, when I was a kid, I didn't like that shit in Ren's Simpy, and right. I still don't like that shit now, Ren's Simpy. Right. So, like, to me, and I, I think Ignis is right to say, like, this is, like, the furthest on the scale it tips. Right. But I think that influence, which manifests itself so clearly in this episode, helps, is putting, for, like, is helping, helping me define what it is about Goran Lagan that rubs me the wrong way sometimes. Well, I think that must be interesting for you because we kind of have, um, there's a scene in Princess Bride where uh, uh, Inigo is, is is drunk and Fezzik has to wake him up and so he's dipping him into hot water and cold water and it must be what you felt like this week, right? Because we're, we're dipping into this cold water and then immediately into the yeah, hot water well, right. in the next and then, episode. And then episode five turns out probably to be my favorite that we've watched Th- so that's far. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know. it's, it's going to be, like, that's really where my feelings of like, I guess, like uh, uh, indignation come from right because um, and we have this which it, it, I have always kind of described going the gone to people as like sixty percent good and a, like forty percent trash right it's trashy in certain points and like this is that this is where forty percent of that trash went is this kind of episode and not even in the way that I would normally refer because there's not even a ton of TNA in this one right not no. really um there's it's just the 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 girls basically like and and you know we should talk about uh, I will get to Kitan and his and his sisters soon because I I I they are recurring characters and I like them but uh, it's. Oh, man, it, it was tough to not only to sit through the the sort of choices in animation where there are a lot of places where you can see them holding on shots for longer, which is also a bad choice because it gives you a lot of time to focus on how off model people. I don't like to dis- to harp on people being off model in animation because it's often a sliding scale, but. I can't shake that fact either. It, and, and the shoddy writing only, like you said, highlights those issues. That's the thing. I would be able to forgive it if it was a fine episode. Although, you know what's, what's an interesting choice in terms of writing uh, is uh, when, when Kamina is constantly talking about combining in this episode, he does frequently say, combine like an Inferno, which of course was uh, you know, huge in Gunbuster, right. which I thought was cute. You right. Know? And, and I actually wanted to, this was one of those times where I wanted to see if that was in the script, if that was in the original script, then we, I would be like, yes, this was a choice, right? But I think, I think this might have been an accident, a fun accident. Really? Fun accident? Okay. I think, but I, I don't know for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it also reminds me a bit of the Mao episodes of Code Geass. If this was like, if there were filler episodes in Gurren Lagan, arguably, this is, exudes that fillerness. Well, and I actually think filler kind of for like a road trip aspect of it is necessary. You kind of need characters just to lounge about and like philosophize, but I wish their ponderings were a little more poignant or better written. Like when they're looking at the clouds, I could learn more about the characters, but I learned very little, if nothing at all, about the characters in this episode. Well, well you could say, because in the first three episodes, what we're really doing is is we're, we're introducing to the characters, the world, and then the forward momentum, yeah. right? That's one, two, and three. 
And now um, we're on the road and we're on our journey. Right. And so for four, it was like, uh, what do we do? And, and the core of this episode is the joke of Kamina. It, it, like it, it, we're almost being set up for a karate kid situation where we have a, a, a wise master who's who is seemingly teaching nonsense to his student but eventually there is a revelation of of the core value that the nonsense was supposed to impart and and the sort of joke at the center of this episode is that there there isn't any Kamina was literally trying to get Simone to jump up in a specific way yeah. that's the joke that's, of yeah, the episode yeah. um and and like there are two there are three things I want to touch on with that one it's that's very Japanese <laughs> it's very Japanese and dry and I don't I'm, I hope that's not I don't mean to be offensive in that way it, it, as much as I just think that like I could definitely see someone who is sitting at, at, at like 2 a.m. in a diner who is scratching ideas on a notepad who's like uh... What if he just jumps? <laughs> I strained against the logic of this too. But it's like, what the fuck is Kamina trying to teach him? I don't get it. Where is the connective tissue here? Well, it's just that's the thing. It's the joke, right? And he just right. likes to jump up gracefully while he's combining. Is that the whole training that, segment? That's the joke. Is that is it's literally because like the, part of it is uh, the part of the payoff is later when Simone is dodging the sixteen gunmen. Yeah. He's there's that joke of him being like, ah, oh, dodging these is easy after all the bull, and that's not at all what Kamina was trying to impart, and like. The the humor of Kamina never just explaining, just jump in a cool way above me is kind of like, I don't know. I know I've been pushing a sort of like this, this was very like of its time sort of angle, but this joke is kind of of its time too. It just doesn't work. It's just not a good bit. Like that, that's the thing about the humor of the previous episodes. Like we, you know, I, I've been careful to praise the subtlety of all the ways they've reinforced Kamina as a as a kind of charlatan or a fraud figure without undermining him as an enjoyable character, yeah. right? Th- this is not that. Th- this isn't just, like, you know, tomfoolery. And, that, and that's... It would be fine if the rest of the episode... If, the one, the joke was funny and the rest of the episode wasn't horrible to look at and it, it felt like there was a point to any of this episode, really... Uh, before I forget, I wanted to shout out Liron's little buddies. I love Liron's little buddies and Liron's song that he sings in in the sub. I'm sure Stephen uh, J. Bloom. Stephen J. Bloom does like uh, he does actually read what the dub script says. Okay, he's yeah. like add boy, add boy. Yeah, yeah. He, does, he does a fine job. With it. You know, I, I really you know, that, those robotic scanners yeah. are cute. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah I dig the little. I do enjoy um, Yoko consoling him after the destroy. Yes, exactly. You can rebuild it. It's fine. Well, I well, it's funny because Yoko doesn't doesn't like this. Oh no, fuckers. no, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I guess we could talk about Kitan and his sisters. Uh, Kitan has a very uh, super robot-y design. Uh, the way that his hair uh, sticks out, we can kind of see in the like tradition of Troa Barton, you know, at that in that sort of style. Yeah, and that yellow color is very, uh, it's very Osama Tezuka. That's like the sort of feel I get from it, like mm-hmm. a or um, a Cyborg Zero Zero Nine, like that sort of hairstyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can see that he's kind of like of the the Kamina ilk. Right, like we the, we could almost sort of describe him as like a, a brother from another mother sort yeah. of situation, cut from the same cloth of like machismo. But I think the 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 I, the the thing that really like like binds them is the sort of like where Kamina has sort of made himself Simone's 
older adoptive brother slash father in a Mario Mario Luigi Mario sort of situation. Uh, Kitana actually is the head of his family, so to speak, like, and, and not in a patriarchal way, as much as it's just that way that often older siblings just sort of end up being in charge, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that we've you know run into over and over again and maybe we'll run into in the next episode too is that we're we're running into this is a world without parents nobody's got parents there's no um authoritative figures that we could trust in this world so far we really haven't run into any that were were not peers right because dayaka and the littner village were all peers like we talked about there there's a kind of like a sibling sort of feel with the littner village and how that was different from giha and and the village chief there um, ki, we have Kinon, Kial, and ki, 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 Kyo, Kyo, yeah, Kyo, Kial, Kinon. Uh, shit. I'm sorry for not being able to tell them apart. Yeah, was, um, my sister, my sister, and me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, episode title. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Oh, no! <laughs> did, you, did you have that in the chamber the whole time? No, that, okay. just, that just fucking came right. to me right now. So, blonde <laughs> one is definitely Justin. <laughs> Griffin is definitely glasses one, Kenan, glasses yeah, middle one, yeah. and Travis is definitely the youngest one. Let's right, get that out of the hair. way. Yeah, yeah let's get go. this out of the way. <laughs> anyway, God fucking damn it! They're my sister, my sister, me for the rest of the show. Yep, now. yep. God damn it! The alternate, the T- Tengen Tapa Gurren McElroy. Yep. In any case, I-, I like them too. They're 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 archetypes. You can tell where they're trying to sit into like anime lady like types, right? Where um, the the oldest sister is kind of like the hot one who who appears to be sort of like spacey, but with it, like I, I got kind of um, uh, OVA Mahoshi vibes out yeah. of her a little bit. Um, Kenon, the middle one, um, she appears easily swayed, like easily impressed by things, um, but taken up with it in a in a sort of like nerdy shy way that that her hair and glasses kind of tell you everything you need to know about this character type and that's kind of true about all of them um and then the youngest uh has this sort of like precociousness yeah like a, some some tomboy energy yeah, a little tricky bit. tricky yeah. youngest sister yep. sort of like we can even see like the the way that her her tooth is kind of fanged kind of gives that sort of uh, putting a cat on, I believe, is the the phrase where we we see people take on the aspects of mm-hmm. a cat in order yeah, to yeah. sort of communicate their precociousness or whatever. Mm-hmm. They they wear some some costumes to uh, to scare beastmen. I, I I like how when we first see them and, and how they <laughs> they sort of chuckle evilly. They he 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 he. I just like <laughs> their whole vibe is very silly. Those masks were cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I dug. There's a um the the show is not going to spend a whole lot of time examining this, but it's really interesting to see all the different takes on survival, right? Mm-hmm. So like we have Giha who is digging down, right, and and investing in livestock and, and very much like stratifying their society there's the the village chief and then everyone else and everyone else works right and then we have Littner, where um the situation is such that everyone has to chip in and work together and pretty much everyone is is a peer right um and then we have this situation where it's a small enough group that they can kind of go radical um and they have somehow figured out they refer to it as explosive water yeah so we can kind of i would assume it's nitroglycerin or something to that effect yeah it's encased right? in some sort of rubbery substance and they just chuck it right and and i just you know obviously it doesn't 
matter deeply, but the fact that they describe it as water makes me think of nitroglycerin, right? Yeah, Which I yeah. think is clear. Um, that makes sense. Maybe they found it in some like old weapons cache. Well, that exactly. We've we've established that this is a thing, right? And that that sort of seed sort of suggests that there's more of these possibly. Like this tech is coming from somewhere, mm, yeah, right? Yeah. Um. But in any case, uh, they they're fun. You know the 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 sort of dynamic of uh, coming up with like a rival character for Kamina is interesting. I think it, it's interesting how this episode. Um, we've talked about how, or at least I've I've sort of toyed with the idea of how the show is sort of coy about who the protagonist of the show is in the way that that Red Letter Media kind of focuses maybe erroneously on uh, the Phantom Menace not having a true protagonist. Uh, this show has kind of been bouncing back and forth between Yoko, Kamina, and Simone. And and this is kind of a Kamina-focused episode. Mm-hmm. And I blame this more on the script than something that they're doing intentionally. Did you guys get that feeling as well? Yeah. More so with Simone and Kamina. Right. The emphasis being on. Mm. It, yeah, I mean, the only reason I would... I would- push back on that because i feel like inevitably the the one who the one who's the pupil of the episode i think still gets posited as the protagonist and so just because like even though it's a goof a gag for the episode the fact that simone is supposed to be learning something you know i i, I still like i would if you made me pick it's it's hard to make a quote unquote even though this yeah. is impossible on an objective analysis just because i've seen the show so hindsight's twenty twenty. it kind of skews my read of it a see bit. i feel like the the archetype the uh, that simone would stand in for like the the younger kid who is mm. who is picking stuff up like it totally exists it's sure oh yeah absolutely yeah, like yeah. and i understand what you guys are both saying right. but this is a, a, a total thing that they're playing off of here and it felt to me like simone fell into the background for for this episode mm. but yeah well, i agree with that definitely um but I, and in a way that I think he gets to, he he gets to do the same thing in the next episode, but in a more successful way. I think that there, and we'll talk about it when we get to the next episode, which will hopefully be soon. Um, so they're hungry, uh, and um, the this is a, a episode that's sort of putting in the idea that the the mechs kind of run on shonen rules, where like if they have low energy, the mechs won't work as good. I don't remember if this is maintained. I kind of don't think it is. <laughs> I, I'm, my my memory is that this is not a... <laughs> they won't need to eat the rest of this. Yeah, I mean, it would be hard to stomach, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so they, um, they, they, they go hunting for uh, some fuzz. I do like the line of, um, why do we have to go? And it's because men are lazy when they're hungry. I was like, okay. That's some lionesses sort of sort of logic. PMC, you're making hands at me. What, I, what's happening? Look, I know this is a comedy show, uh-huh. but are you really telling me that a group of four people are so dumb that they pick up a pile of hair and declare this to be food? <laughs> well, I guess so. Like, like, I guess hey, look, in this look, episode look, they do. Look, yeah, there's there's a pond full of like birds that we know are extremely edible, but there's also a pile of hair. Here. Yeah, totally. And we're gonna pick up a pile of hair and take it back. Yeah, exactly. Because that's funny. People. I mean, it's funny, right? And also, you know, it gets the action, the episode going, right. and all that. But like. I don't know. Yeah, man, this is a bad episode. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. This is fucking bad uh, up. <laughs> like, the one thing I will say when they're all hunting, 
Um, there is, they're all basically lusting over Kamina, which is fine. I don't want to dictate who and who cannot lust over whom. It's just my issue with it is that unlike the attraction between Yoko and Kamina before, which I felt was natural, this felt forced. So what I would say for this is that it, it is forced, and I think it's forced so that we can get an opportunity for the Yoko dynamic with Kamina to be further sort of em- emphasized. Which yeah, is but she say- is still a little hesitant. Well, well. So what's happening here is that um, she is what she's reacting to is not the idea of attraction to Kamina. What she's reacting to is all these these other women who are instantly jumping to let's fuck Kamina, right? And that's really what she's pushing against is not necessarily the idea of attraction to Kamina, but all these other girls being and not in a like, uh, uh, you know, slut shamey way. It's more in a yeah. sort of like, uh, uh, uh. In that sort of complicated way that, you know, if uh, PMC and I were both interested in the same person and I made a comment to that to a degree of this, that person is, is sexually attractive to me out loud. And PMC could get annoyed at that, not because he disagrees, but just because it's the idea of someone else holding this opinion is... is uh, frictionous, you know, like that, that they, you could, you know, there's a gross sort of competitiveness to this, but there's also just a sort of human sort of like, Hey, that's mine. I, I, I saw that first sort of situation. I would also compare this to like w- when you're younger and your sibling has a favorite character and that means you're not allowed to have that same favorite. Yeah. That, that sort of thing rather than like a, I agree with you that this is like anti Bechdel. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> like, the reason, like, we got four women together and they're talking how much they want to fuck comedy. There's a, it just limits the, the number of identities that they can have. Right. Like, there, th- I always remember back, I was taking a class, a Fritz Lang class in uh, my undergrad. There's an old Fritz Lang film from like 1936 called Fury. Uh, it's about a oh. man who's wrongfully accused. He's played by Spencer Tracy. And there's a scene in the movie where it's a, it's like a throwaway scene, but there's like three women in a store and they are talking and then more heavily gossiping. And as the gossiping continues and the murmurings take over, Lang decides to cut randomly to a shot of like hens clucking and then he segs right back out. And, you know, it's playing on a very traditional conception of, like, right. know, womanhood and how what women do when they interact. It just Frivolousness, me of that. Yeah. sure. Well, and I don't, I'm not sitting here arguing, like, no, this scene is good, actually. It's good when oh, four women talk about how awesome a man is, especially when the joke is kind of on them, because... As as we've discussed, Kamina is dumb. Yeah, and 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 also I don't mean to like I, who am I to dictate what a character says or doesn't say. This just seems more commercial than some of the other dialogue in the show. So it's far. very easy to see this cynically, yeah. right? Where um, so for for example, I'm um, I'm watching Fate Zero right now. I, I think I've talked about this before, and uh, one of the dynamics that's going on in the show is one where uh, one of the main characters has not two love interests, but one character who he's married to and another character who is a, someone he sleeps with. And and it's not really a dynamic that they're... This is not like a poly situation. This is like... It's more like his wife and his mistress sort of thing. And this is a dynamic that those two women seem to be fine with. And and like, I, I'm torn on this because on one hand, the, there's a, a something about that that I do think would be interesting for two people to share a, a love interest and for that to not come between them, right? But it's so easy to read this cynically because this is definitely a show for, for young boys, right? Yeah, it's not to bring up Patrick Rothfuss, but it's basically right, like, exactly. you know, quote the fuck machine. The and very, everyone is exaggerated, like so hyperbolically attracted to him. The fairy sex dimension, yeah. right, right, right. But the other thing I would say is that like we don't really know how long like the, the Kitan and his sisters have been traveling together and only with each other. 
You know, and for the I one of my favorite lines actually is how one of them compliments communist eyelashes. <laughs> I was like, that's probably not in the original script, but I like yeah. that line. <laughs> it's just so stupid. It's the sort of thing that like that young people who don't really know how to be like attracted to people might say, especially young young girls might say, um, is because that sort of like exhibiting attraction towards somebody isn't really like modeled as much in in you know s- s- things um I, I you know i'm with you i'm not saying this is great <laughs> like i i liked this scene more as a uh a exploration of how yoko navigates her her feelings for kamina than i sort of like ah kamina is such a fucking stud yeah um especially because like i got the impression that with kinon and the youngest one who is either kyo or i think she's kial is the youngest, youngest, youngest one's the youngest kimon is the middle and kyo is the oldest yes so i got the impression with kinon and kial is that they're just young they're just babies and they're just, and like kial doesn't even seem that interested necessarily as much as she's just like trying to yeah fit in maybe like theatrical flexing to be a part of the group it just seems more like like kyo more than anyone is is the one who's like like actually sexually interested and and like whatever he's hot like that's um, yeah, fine but- it, it's just like it's it, it's just that these girls seem otherwise pretty frivolous and and shallow otherwise right yeah. this is the only thing we get to hear them talk with another lady about is kamina and then you know and she, they don't really get to do much except seem to die later and then not in a confusingly animated way um is there anything else to talk about other than this is the first time we get to see the um sequence the uh the chunk back oh, yeah, and, yeah. and then chunk right, forward, right. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like cool. It's fine. I, I think the best part of it is probably when uh, the drill bursts through co- the roof of communist mech and communist tilts his head and, and sort of like Luke Skywalker, like, huh, you know, that, that that's probably the best part of it. it, it, it that's kind of it, though, right? Yeah, there's really nothing too remarkable about the enemy mech, really. The the sixteen faces. No, it, so. it's um, it's got a a, a a rocket punch, as we might say yeah, in Marvel yeah, Three, yeah. rocket punch. But other than that, uh, not really. It's fine, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I you know, uh, I think, I think with the gunmen, they have a really interesting job of because they they have to create interesting looking things that are boring and low level and also cool looking things and the fact that they are successful at both is really really worth stressing even in this bad episode this like the best looking thing in this bad episode is is that 16 face gone man even if yeah. it's not super interesting in and of itself uh but yeah this this episode sucks <laughs> I mean, like, am I? I feel like I'm the one who's coming out strongly, mm. swinging at. This no, episode, I mean, I didn't, like, I, as I said, I mean, the thing that I had to say about it more so, more so than I didn't like it was, I think the reason why the humor rubs me the wrong way is because of how it's influenced by things like South Park. Yes, I don't think that's incorrect. It's bad Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. It's just it's it's this weird peek into like what if this show is boring and yeah. didn't really have any interesting thoughts or like playing with it, it dynamics in a way that would, was surprising. Like what if it just was what it seemed to be? And I guess it's valuable for that, right? Yeah, like yeah. this is if there is an argument for watching like Gurren Hen uh, instead of the the series, like this episode might be it. <laughs> But um, I think um, at, over the horizon, I do think Is I that see, the White Castle. I do believe I see the White All Castle. Right. Mouse, mouse, oh. What the hell was that? Oh. It's another face god. 
Are we here? Are we yeah, here? let's go, buddy. Yeah. All right. Do your bit. So I've been I've been catapulted out of the White Castle. Your drill bit. <laughs> I'm 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 turning it on. I'm spinning it on. Episode five, uh, which I believe is just called "I Don't Understand It at All." Episode five begins pretending episode four never happened. As our intrepid heroes accidentally fall into a new village. This village is small and even compared to the others we have seen, very poor. They are greeted by Roshiu, a young man who looks like Fei Fong Wong, about Simone's age, who appears to be something of the gopher for the village, uh, the village leader, a stoic priestly man by the name of Magen. To this village, the surface is a heavenly place where the gods, Ganmen, walk. Uh, we learn that they have a strict population limit, which they enforce with a lottery system. Instead of getting stoned to death, haha, the winners are forced to leave the village. A lottery is held, and two young children without parents, Gimme and Dari, are chosen. Kamina is having a lot of difficulty accepting that any of this is necessary, but Simone tries to stress empathy for these people and how they have chosen to survive. Kamina's words have caused seeds of doubt to sprout within Roshio, who never thought to question the ways they lived. Suddenly, an attack from a gunman from above forces everyone into action, including Magen, who pilots an ancient gunman formerly worshipped by the village to its defense. Roshi learns that most of what they practice in the village, if not all of it, is a lie meant to uphold the way of life they had in the name of the greater good. Uh, learning this truth, he chooses to walk away from Omalas with Gimme and Dari and the others. A comment I wanted to make about episode titles... Because I, I should have noticed this earlier, mm-hmm. but I noticed in my watches this weekend that. Uh, so I think we're all watching on Netflix, right? Uh, that, or, yes. Okay. Not not Stephen here. Stephen here is not. doing a Blu-ray. So right on on Netflix, I noticed that in the list of episodes, it has one episode title. In this case, it was I don't understand it at all mm-hmm. for this episode. But then the uh, the subtitles, when informing us on what the stylized mm-hmm. you know, kanji say at the, when we get, when we the show gives us the episode title, is a different wording. Yes. So for this episode, instead of I don't understand it at all, it was I don't get it, not one bit. Yeah, I have that too. And uh, so I, I and it's not important. You know, it seems to me like I, you know, if I had to choose one, that maybe the other one, just because when I. We've said in the past that these episode titles right now are getting taken from stuff that Kamina says. Mm-hmm. And so the I guess you know the the script is I don't get it not one bit but you know whatever I'm, I I just want to point it out. So this is part of that that thing uh so uh in our intro episode it came out swinging hard against the dub of the show um and I want to stress that I I was not uh uh, I was not coming out swinging for dubs in general. Their dubs dubs serve an important purpose, and that there are many good dubs that are worth your time. I, I can name three or four off the top of my head. Uh, Yu Yu Hakusho has a superior dub to its sub. Kawi Bebop is is worth watching in its sub rather than its or in its dub rather than its sub. Fuli Cooley has an excellent dub considering. Uh, Hunter Hunter has a pretty good dub considering how, how uh, recent it is. Um, this is a good example of the kind of issue I have with the dub script for this, where because of the how much of this is is character focused on Kamina's like sh- like strength of charisma, right? They they need to have the the writing needs to be on point and the performance needs to be on point, and these are two very 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 difficult things to do, even if you're writing the thing and not just translating it from another language that doesn't always emotionally uh, 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 communicate the same exact things, right? And and so w- w- I don't understand it at all 
um, when read just like that, might not communicate the same sort of character that Kamina has, like like the English title does, right? They, like the English title communicates a little bit more informality, a little bit more of the attitude that Kamina has in this moment. And this is why I don't love the script as much in the dub because they have to make those calls, right? Because they're trying to communicate things. They're actually trying to adapt it, mm-hmm. which I don't begrudge them. It just, I, I, for me, a lot of the choices don't really work. I, I Or at least they, they uh, instead of landing the emotional thing that they're trying to do, for me, I'm too in the like process of what they're trying to do and it distracts from their, mm, you know, yeah, what yeah, they're yeah. trying to accomplish. But in any case, we start this episode uh, with, um, I really love the image of the Gurren dragging their fucking house yeah. <laughs> just behind them. I really love that image. Um, and that uh, uh, they probably take turns uh, uh, when it comes to, like, walking outside the mech and uh, just walking inside. I bet it gets too hot sometimes, right? With the the location they're in, which gives me big, like, I don't know. Nevada desert sort of situation. Yeah, American Southwest. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the sort of I guess there'd be too much um Dragon Ball Z mountain plumage for 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 there to really be plumage isn't the right word, but you know what I'm talking about with the big piles of rocks and shit. Yeah. Um uh but uh I, I like, you know, we're I don't like the the continued bit of of Kamina trying to make fun of Yoko's butt, but I do like her new uh uh retort which is to, to just fucking sit on him like an idiot and then shoot him a lot with bullets. <laughs> what, what is the meatball bullet? What is that? The little meatball what bullet. Is, it's squishy. It's, yeah, it's like a fucking riot bullet. Yeah, you know, like, it's, is it rubber bullet? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yes, I believe it is a, it is a riot bullet okay. sort of situation. I mean, that's what Kamina deserves, of course. I guess, but, you yeah. Know. I mean, that's what the impression that I got from all the impressions left upon him when we see him uh, ejected from the gunman later. Um, I also do like how it's just they're they're they're, um, <laughs> they're horsing around that, that led them to the village here. Um, it's uh, I, I, the thing that's really cool is how the uh, the depth that the village is we typically or not typically because we've really only seen the Giha village. Um, but the we we see that this village is also very deep down as compared to like the Giha village was we saw how far up they had to drill up to get to the surface um and that's created also this like color temperature for the episode which yeah. is really fun it's it's subdued yeah i like the little touch too as they're falling in the cavern too it appears to be like f- former sky rises correct me if i'm wrong like with window paneling it definitely seems it to imply more of a like buried civilization yeah. than we have otherwise seen like, yeah it's got that what's uh zebuum zebuum yes, yes. yeah it's got strong zebuum energy yes. when they landed i thought of the beginning of final fantasy 10 when titus is making his way through baj village remember that beginning with the uh, submerged ruins yes yeah. yes 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 okay when he's in Xanarkand, the, yeah. the very beginning, okay. Um, uh, 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 real Xanarkand, not fake Xanarkand. Um, well, you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thinking phase. Um, so uh, when they land in this village, um, they, they they run into the locals pretty quickly, because this would be alarming. And the, the this one kid kind of pushes his way forward, and and introduces himself, and we learn that he is Roshu, who Kamina refers to as Forehead Boy for the rest of the episode, which is very rude, <laughs> but also not incorrect. 
Um, Roshiu is the sort of kid I feel. I feel this this child's energy strongly. Who who um, maybe is, is feels upon himself for whatever reason that uh, he needs to do things that things won't get done unless he goes around and he does them for the adults in his life. Uh, uh, what were your impressions of Roshiu from from this episode? Do you, I, I, obviously we've seen the show, and so we have ideas and thoughts about these characters um but from this episode what were your impressions well-intentioned i mean he might be he represents authority but he doesn't embody completely that authority but he wants to use whatever powers he has to help those around him yeah i mean i think what we learned from this episode is that he is not like absolutely married to authority that he he wants the best outcome and if you show him that there's a better outcome than the system, he's going to take that leap. You know, that's the uh, the end conclusion of the episode for Roshu and his journey. Uh, also, he uh, he is, is like young Fei Fang Wang. Yes, he looks like a baby Fei Fang. I didn't Wong. make that connection a connection until now, but that's a good uh, yeah, that's yeah. an apt comparison. Oh, I'm surprised. I, every time I see him, I just look at little fucking baby Fei. The only thing he's missing is a little spurt of blood. Yeah. Um But um, uh, for me, the thing I, I think. Uh, really comes across with this character is something there's like a there's like a harsh reality in this episode that that feels like you know i described the last episode as a peek into a world where girl in the gone was a bad show but this felt like a, a peek into a different world in the same way that that visiting another another a foreign place not even another country but any place that's different from where you're used to being can kind of feel like where you understand the rules of how this place functions but it's so completely different from how you would expect it to that it it feels discomforting in that way um cuz no one's like mean to them right the meanest they sort of get is uh this weird sort of meta moment where Roshi asks Yoko to put on a dress uh, because she is uh, dressed in the way that she's dressed, which I didn't really know how to take other than because uh, they're trying to paint, like paint this place as, as sort of uh, uh, backward and regressive. Well, regressive, I think, is the right word. But like there's a there's a lot of um, Christian sort of shorthanding that they're putting here. Like that's sort of, that's why. Uh, the the you know Magen is walking around with a book, right? Like there, as as I understand it, there wouldn't really be like uh you know for for Shintoism or 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 Taoism, there wouldn't really be like a like a book that you would carry and 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 like reference and be like, ah oh, yes, this is what this is what Buddha said this one time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure there were plenty of those things that Buddha said this one time, um, uh, but. Uh, that to me, I just think about Buddha saying, "I keep trucking and fucking." <laughs> that one time, Buddha did say that thing. That one time, Buddha said, "The checks are in the mail." <laughs> yeah. One time, Buddha logged online to Two Channel and complained about the animation in episode four of A Girl in the Gun. <laughs> That's right. It was like uh, putting his face near an anus and breathing <laughs> deeply. Um, but uh, God, I lost track of what, where I was going. You're talking about uh, well, Rocio commenting upon well, her manner of dress. Right, yeah. That, oh. I mean, that whole bit. I, I don't know. I was trying to 
come away with some conclusion about that? Because you were comparing it to sort of the Christian trappings of power. Like, why is there a book and why robes and all these various, you know, images? Right. Uh, that, that seemed to me like uh, we, we were meant to push against, like, this show has come back around to, this episode has come back around to the anti-authoritative themes of the first episode, right? Where the first episode was concerned with obvious lies that authority was telling in order to maintain their power, right? Which is to say that the surface doesn't exist, right? And that Kamina is full of shit and that they should just keep digging. Like that, we understand this is an untrue thing. Or like, we as an audience intuit that that's not true unless we learn something different about that setting. Right, right. right. Um, and then we learn that it is in fact true. Um, and in this in this episode, it's the same way, right? Like we're immediately learning things that we know for a fact are not true, which is like, the gunmen aren't gods. Did anyone else get um, Legends of the Hidden Temple sort of vibes from this? I got Moai vibe, Easter Island Moai. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 those statues as well, but also the, uh, the other thing it made me think of was the pizza robot. Uh, uh, obviously, when we see the 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 gunman in action later, it made oh. me think of the pizza robot yeah. because of its thin arms, the thin. Oh yeah, arms. yeah, 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 yeah. You guys remember obviously the the pizza robot from I've, Code Geass. All my brain cells are going through the stacks trying to pizza guy. What, what, the, what fuck? the fuck, pizza robot? Um, uh, but yes, yeah, so we uh, uh, Kamina, y- Yoko, and Simone land in this village and and Liron, and the village is uh. You know, they're not too fussed about them. They they not even super curious about what's on the surface. Roshiu asks later because and we'll learn character based reasons as to why. Um uh, but mostly they, they're just pretty like, you know, chill. And you can see why. They're concerned with how they're gonna survive like the next day. They seem pretty tight knit too, right? Like uh, we see a dude run out later and be like, Hey Roshiu, uh uh some kids were born. And Roshiu's like, Cool. And it's like uh, actually, just triplets. Hiroshi's like, ah, shit. Fuck. Fuck. Which, I guess, put the, the triplets put them to 51, right? I imagine. Well, from the 52. 52, right? Because it can't exceed 50. Well, well, I so it's either 51 or 52. Yeah. Because, it, it, like, it, getting rid of two suggests that getting to 50 or 49 is what they're trying to do. Right. I assumed they were trying to get to 49. Okay. Which is why they, they did. But it's fine. It doesn't yeah, matter. Right. Either way, they exceeded 50, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just that I was thinking it, they thought the twins was fine. It was when it became triplets, that's when it became a problem. So that, to me, think, makes me think they were at 48. Okay. Then triplets mm-hmm. were born, put them to 51. They needed to leave two, right? Or I assume. But maybe mm-hmm. not. I don't know. Um, either way, <laughs> a lottery has to happen now. Um, uh, this episode's almost the boomer meme tro- boomer trolley meme come to life really it, it's yeah it's definitely like um did you read the lottery in in school or uh, those who walk away from omelas yeah i or- cited that in my notes if i mentioned uh, jeremy bentham two episodes ago with his panopticon anything about having to do with utilitarianism the needs of the many you know a trump the needs of the few or the needs of the one it's very it's a very similar th- philosophical concept that this episode is grappling with well i think what's interesting about this one is that that you're not too often meant to in the end sympathize with the authority figure who is like not prolonging what's the term i'm looking for um propagating this yeah. the system right like uh by the end of this episode we don't hate Magen for what no. he's done not even roshu hates Magen for a, a very bad thing that Magen definitely did like i almost wondered um this is this is 
not what we normally do in this show, um, but I was curious about it. Um, and the strength of this episode made me want to think about this. Do you think Magen is Roshu's father? I was wondering that, too. Because also, again... We were taught. We always talk about the dub script. There's moments when they use father low ca- lowercase f. Oh, really? So I thought it was implied at some points. Like in a moment, of, there's a moment of crisis where he, he says "father," you know, as opposed to like "father Magen." Oh, really? So I wasn't <sighs> sure if that was literal or if that was just like a sloppy capitalization thing. See, this is a script thing. Yeah, I right. Like I don't, this. you know, I don't know. I don't like this. So when, when it got to the scene where I was like, "What happened to mom?" I was like, "Oh, okay, they must be father and the, son." I, I think I wonder if the dub script made that leap, right? Yeah, um, right. Because you could read it and you could be like, "Oh, well, the." They don't come out right and say it, but like must be father well, in, in addition to being father. Mag. It would certainly help explain. I don't necessarily think it needs an explanation, but it would certainly help explain why Roshu um, defers to father Magen in this way. Other than like I could say when I first watched this sub episode, the impression that I got was that Roshu wants to saw father Magen as a as a learned intelligent and and like someone to to look up to and emulate in the way that simone looks up to and emulates kamina right like i saw this as a the first time i watched it as roshu being not a dark reflection but a reflection of of what a young person without that sort of role model might end up being like and roshu is not roshu is a good kid Right, like Roshu helps out and believes in the the things that the town believes in and wants to do what's best for the town, even when it personally hurts him. Right, um, but he's he's misled because he trusts the the system too much. Right, he trusts that the system has its best his best interests at heart when it doesn't. Right, um, and it's it's one of those things that you can see happening just as easily to Simone. Um, although I don't know if Roshu. I don't know if Roshu would buy Kamina's, what Kamina was selling at any particular point. Roshu seems maybe a little bit smarter yeah, <laughs> than that. Yeah. Maybe, but um, uh, so when it comes to the different sort of conflicts that, that are coming up in this episode, a lot of them are Roshu-focused. This is a Roshu episode more than it is our heroes. Our heroes, the main like conflict in it is, in a lot of ways, Kamina... Um, we, we see that Kamina is driven strictly by a, a, like, he has a strong sense to liberty, right? He has a will to liberty that um, we're seeing the flip side of now. We can, you know, there are, is such a thing as like a, a noble sentiment or a noble impulse that when in, uh, applied in, incorrectly or in, improperly or in the wrong cases, you know, causes more harm than good. And even though Kamina is right, and uh, he he means for the best here. And really what he's talking about is liberty for all these people. This isn't the way to do it. And this isn't the time to do it. And so he's wrong. And this is something that he will never be able to accept, right? Like, this is something that he needed to live in Giha Village. And so he's not going to be able to put it aside because of the way that the village chief would gaslight mm, him right. and everybody else in town, mm. right? Um, but Simone is a more is someone who is in his own head a lot and so is a more empathetic person. He's more able to put himself into the feelings of of the townspeople, right? Because he also wanted to believe in a greater good that mm-hmm. he was doing. Yeah. Like he's it's easier for him to put him in the shoes of Roshu, for example. I think that's mostly what he's doing in the episode mm. to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um so we'll see multiple times where Common is like 
this is dumb i don't get why we're doing any of this stuff um and simone's like well i mean but they, this is their town they live here they have a system that works we should you know i understand your feelings but we you know i think maybe we should let them do their thing oh and i forgot to mention we were also introduced to two kids uh gimme and dari who, who seem who seem fun seem like some some cute little kids yeah um uh so what did you guys think when i when i describe Kamina is like concerned with liberty, but perhaps unable to really like exercise it in a, a way that was constructive. Do you think that's a a a, a fair sort of uh, observation, or do you do you think that's that's maybe reading more into what they were putting forward about Kamina than is actually on the, the text? They're actually in the text, I should say. No, I agree. I think he's allergic to all forms of authority, and he will resist he will resist them head on. Impulsively at times. Yeah, I mean, it's just it seems true to Kamina's character. I think to have him do this, you know, I think that's and and I think it comes from, especially from a past that you had indicated in Gia Village. Right. I think the um, it's interesting to show how somebody who is, uh, I think thus far like a demonstrably a successful like leader figure mm. or or maybe uh uh uh, I don't want to say populist, but. Someone who, who it is easy to understand why people can get behind this sort of person, right? And it's easy, and now it's interesting to put him into a situation where his logic, it, while perhaps sound, doesn't work, right? I, I think that's for this show to, to, and how much it hinges on the sort of like what what people would refer to as hype, but but really what they're talking about is like a, a sincere emotional energy uh, to to put the brakes on it so hard, like yeah, this episode yeah. does. Um, we learned some more about Roshu and this process that, that they, this is decided by a, um, a lottery system where they draw straws. I believe this is a, uh, Shinto practice. This, this, the thing with, of uh, drawing long straws with, with either like a symbol or, uh, or, um, a phrase, uh, or something on it. I believe I could be making this up, but I'm almost certain this is a thing. Um, uh, I don't know if it's ever explained to us how Magin uh, manipulates this other than I is he the one who hands them out or does he have people draw them from a can I forget I don't know if the text is explicit I, I assumed he passed them out or at least held the can well, no I assumed he held the can as people picked out of it yeah so I guess he's doing like an angling thing like eh? yeah, yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. <laughs> um, or, or is somehow able to plant those la- last two for Gimme and Dari or however he did it for Roshi's mom or whoever else he got to leave, you know, like that's part of the reason I ask about the relationship between Roshu and, and Makin, because if it was like the context there would, would change a lot of how like villainous Magin would be right. If, if Roshi's mother was someone who like volunteered to do this, right. Or it was some kind of discussion and, and, and that would also help explain Magin's sort of like dedication to this whole like, because there's a there's a cynical read of all this, right? Where it where this episode is kind of putting forward this idea that like the main purpose of of faith systems is like a inoculation and mm. control, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but the episode kind of comes on the side of like, but maybe that's fine. <laughs> and uh, like you know, in a way that I would kind of describe as like interesting rather than like upsetting right like I, I think that there's definitely an upsetting side of it of like mm. <laughs> i mean these people are 
not in a better state than they were before, really. Um, and But I think that makes it a more interesting episode. I think not. so, too. I think there is a superficial read of this episode where you can condemn it because it ne- doesn't necessarily agree with your politics one, like 100%. But if it took that tact, it would be very prescriptive and it would feel a little too didactic for my taste. I like how complex these questions are. Right. There is a very famous article published in a science journal called The Tragedy of the Commons. It was published in 1968. Garrett Harding argues that essentially if you leave humanity to harvest what natural resources are provided to it, they will inherently exploit those natural resources until there is none left for anyone. So that needs to be regulated. And which on the surface, I agree with it, especially as we move forward into the future with climate change on our doorsteps. I agree that governmental forces should, as best they can, monitor these things and put up protective barriers against these things and make sure that, you know, our natural resources are not exploited. But if you take that a step even further, too, then you are also maybe applying this very prescriptive set of rules to indigenous populations and other marginalized populations and affect possibly even justifying genocide or even like China's uh, one child policy, for example. Right. This is where I think, and I'm not necessarily, we're, we here at Mechanations aren't necessarily saying, and and these are the deep questions. Gurren Lagan episode five is asking about the state of our world as much as we're saying. But it does bring up those questions. Like I did not condemn right. Father Magin out and out, and I don't think the text does either. He does not. He does not actually kill anyone. I assume he banishes those who leave. Well, so the thing, okay, I, it's important to note that he is definitely aware this is a death sentence. Like, but the villagers explicitly stated, too, that before Mogging got this whole setup up and running, it was a lot fucking worse. We, yes, and we should – I think that we don't really have a choice uh, but to take the word for it in yeah. the text, right? Like what else can we, can we really do? And, and I would trust – even though these people – like if you're a cynical person, you, you might describe these people as dopes. Um, but I, I, I think – I, I, you you can see where utilitarian where this works right if you, they don't have food they don't really have electricity they don't really have like they live in a like a like a pond like a swampy sort of like so you know we see when they try to feed Simone Kamina it's like uh, fish and, bones yeah ex- like you know they're miserable right they don't have much and and that's kind of the angle Simone is constantly taking is like you know they this what how they live isn't really our business in this case i mean it's a little bit our business when they're like want want these kids <laughs> but i mean you know that's some shit for for sure, but uh, uh, it, it is otherwise uh, uh, interesting how this episode is very clear because we, as an audience, probably are on communist side, right? Because we recognize ah, this man is is lying to these folks and is is controlling this community probably to his own ends. Gur, because we've been confronted with this character before with the the village chief uh, Giha. Yeah. Um. Uh. But uh, it's it's you know the the episode is doing the work as to making us understand this guy's plight, right? Even if, you know, he's maybe a little bit too... I, I mean, that's the other thing that's cool about it is that we don't really have enough time to really sit with the the scope of what he's been forced to do. Um, uh, and I think that the, the sort of um, bittersweetness of the episode is best encapsulated by his last line, which I think is like a... Like a like a chef's kiss moment at the end of this episode. Um, uh, but I, I guess, are we there yet? I guess we should probably talk a little bit. I mean, because there's an action scene where uh, 
a gunman falls from the surface in a way that I I'm sure was supposed to parallel what happens with with uh, Simone and Kamina in yeah. the first episode. Um, and at this point, they're clearly hunting Team Gurren, or at least the Gurren Lagan. Yes, he calls out Gurren Lagan specifically. This, um, but I mean that makes sense, right? Because Viral would would be able to yeah. report back to his his leading forces or whatever if he even has yet. My I would assume at this point that probably he's still trying to to handle this on his own, but. Um, uh, uh, this gunman that comes down is a is kind of a. I would describe this as one of the cooler looking ones that we have seen. This is more on the cool scale than the dopey scale. It looks like a like a like a plus version of the first episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Where it, it like has a little bit more limbs going on. It's angular, but not like like clearly just a, a big triangle face like we saw in the first episode. The way it's angular and pointed forward definitely gave me um, some some armored core vibes, I think, you know? The way that, it, that uh, things come to a point at the front. That's actually yeah. a good call. It's it's a little bit less, like, because it's a gunman, it's less, like, stompy than the ar- mm. uh, armored core mechs ended up being, but um, it's definitely in that ilk. It gave me, um I don't know why, but, like, it reminded me of Street Sharks. I don't know why. It might be just the color of the or, and the, and like the sort of angles of it. Um, we also never see the pilot too, you know, which I thought was interesting. Oh, good point. Yeah, because yeah, it falls into that abyss that's just near the village. By the way, um, but that's fine. Don't worry yeah, about it. There was it. a point during the episode when I was watching the first time where I thought they throw him off the. Well, I thought, was this going to be a situation where the pool drains because they moved the old god? Like, the old god Mm. allowed this village to form in the first place by blocking the flow of water out of this area. Right. And that now that the flow of water was gone, is the whole village displaced? Of course, that wasn't the episode, but, like, you can always imagine that premise, right? Yeah. PMC, did did Mokin defeat this gunman by forcing it out of bounds? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what happened is that Mogan found the the out of bounds point in the village and forced this. What's going to happen in the next episode is that Team Goron goes back to the surface, right? And then the Gaman that got kicked into the abyss will actually cycle back around because space is a closed loop, right? And it will exactly. Fall from the yeah, sky. Checks notes. That's correct. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So either way, it's going to take the fall damage anyway. Right. So exactly. this will be a defeated Gaman. Yeah. So that's good to know. That's so that's how Mogan has been te- keeping the village safe is with speedrun tactics. Exactly. Um, so, uh, with the help of Magen in the old god Gonman, uh, Gurnlagon is able to defeat this, this enemy Gonman. Um, and this is the point, we didn't really touch upon this, but the, the, uh, the village believed that Gonman were gods, that divine beings. And there was one, Kamina pointed it out, like, immediately, he was like, hey, there's a fucking Gonman over there. Um, and we see there's a couple points in the episode where Roshiu is checking out the the gunman and he even finds um in in maybe the closest this episode gets to com- uh, comedy that doesn't have to do with titties uh the like activation switch to get in is like in the nose in a like it's a, just yeah. a fucking nose hair yeah, like a yeah like a nose hair <laughs> it's very good i'm sorry that's some good visual beats um and this is the moment where we start to hear about like the lottery and the population control and stuff like that um and uh, and when now with hindsight, we understand that um, Magen was talking to Roshiu, but he was also talking to himself, right? Like he's talking himself into all of these as much as he's trying to explain to Roshiu why they do them. Do you think, did you guys get that read or do you feel like... Yeah, I, mean, I, I think especially when you when you watch it on a second watch, you can you can sort of tell, given how the episode ends, that... The whole time he has to convince himself. I think this is also one of the reasons he lets Roshu go so easily is because 
he he doesn't have that sort of absolute conviction that this is the way the things should, should be done because I think I think like the the village chief and Gia had that. That's why the village chief and Gia can tell you there's no surface, right? Exactly. Because like this is it, buddy. Yeah, you're under my thumb, right? Whereas I think Magen doesn't have that level of conviction about this, even aside the issues of being utilitarian. I think there is a true, there is a true like Tootsie Roll center to Magen that is like he puts this uh, this like sort of sense of being like academic or priestly or or bookish. Right. And I think there probably is a truth to that that lends to his understanding that that Roshu can't stay anymore in a sort of Frodo must go to the Greyhaven sort of situation mm. where it, it, it he couldn't stay. Like it just wouldn't work. Um uh but um I I something else that we think that that is interesting to point out in this moment is when um Magin is about to fall out of bounds after the the other mech uh, we see that Gurn Lagan saves him, um, you know, he, before he fell through the corner uh, and fell into the infinite abyss, abyss uh, to the top. Um, and we see that it wasn't Kamina. It definitively was not Kamina who saved that, mm. that Gon man because his arms are crossed and he does not have his hands on the controls. So that means that Simone did it. That Simone can, one, that Simone can pilot the Gurn Lagan on his own. And two, that Simone made that choice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that Kamina didn't. Kamina, I think, is not the sort of person who would have been able to say, like, uh, I, I just like this person, but I'm, you know, I respect their human dignity enough to go save them. Um, Simone does have that, right? Simone gets what this chief does to with this village and, and how the village would be hurt without him, right? Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that's important to note here is that the village chief didn't know how to pilot the gunman. He just sort of followed his gut is the way he sort of explains it. And this is the second time we've seen it work that way in the show. Um, and I don't think this is the last time they're going to point out that this is a, a way that this functions, right? Is that there seems to be some sort of intuitive manner by which the gunman can be piloted. Uh, and which is part of what's allowed for Simone and Kamina to be able to succeed in the way they have. And we haven't mentioned Liron much. Liron hasn't doesn't get much to do in this episode, yep. unfortunately. Um, Yoko gets a couple of cool shots. I do like the shot of uh, uh, her revealing the gun underneath her the outfit that they gave her, and the, the sort of shot of the the cape kind of flowing in the wind as she takes some shots is cool. It's cool. I like it. Yeah. Um, we also this is maybe the the only time we'll get a sort of. Uh, in character explanation for why Yoko dresses the way she does in that, like when she's given the, the white mage outfit that she wears for most of the episode, she, she talks about how she's not crazy about outfits that restrict her movement. Um, I, uh, this is a side eye thing, of course, because, uh, if that was true, she would be wearing a sports bra. Probably I would describe her bikini top as something that would restrict her movement, but, And only, the occasional, it occasionally obstructs vision, too. Well, only in the... It, like So, like, earlier in the episode, there's a gag where she uh, loses her top because of the, uh, the, 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 the kerfuffle on the surface. And so she kicks Kamina out of the mech before uh, he notices, basically. Um, and to me, if she's embarrassed about the titty flopping out, um, uh, that would suggest to me she would wear something that wouldn't make that extremely likely but 
it's fine. It's whatever. This is one of those things. I can't, on one hand, be like, it's fine for Yoko to look the way she does and also complain when the logic of it doesn't really track. But I also do think it's kind of fine for Yoko to look the way she does. But also, uh, this was dumb. This made me think of quiet and like yeah, sunlight through your, through your skin. This is bullshit. Um, uh, but I think uh, other than that, there's the the thing really to touch on is how Roshu is is going to leave with Gimme and Dari with our our heroes to the surface. And before he leaves, Magen gives him his his book, and uh, and Roshu's like, "Well, thanks, but I I, I can't fucking read, bro." And Magen's like, <laughs> "Guess what? <laughs> yeah, I have a question. Is Magen drill?" <laughs> is is, is Morgan just drill? <laughs> Guess what, motherfucker? I can't read either. Yeah, village, finger guns, village chief drill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, this to me is symbolic of the whole. Okay, I want to get. I want to do something we don't normally do uh, okay. I, with your guys's permission. Um, I I would like to enter the spoiler zone. Ooh. I would like to to put up our, some force fields around people who would prefer not to be spoiled about future events, um, because I really want to talk about Roshiu and how this might affect him. And so, if you're not interested in hearing this, this is your opportunity to leave and not listen. Three, two, one. Spoilers. Okay, Roshu did not learn the right lesson from this. It seems like uh, Roshu did not learn that maybe doing uh, the uh, the right thing or the the right thing the wrong way it could blow up in your face at all. And and I love that. That's delicious. Mm. I, I'm very excited to to get return to this later mm, yeah. to see how Roshu decides to carry himself as an authoritative figure because I remember it being. A, a lot of the ways, like in this this same sort of thing, where it's like he's doing the right thing, he's doing the right thing, and not for him, he's doing because he feels like he needs to, and you can see the seeds of that being planted here, right, where he yeah. sees how a, an authority figure should act, mm-hmm. right. Ah, uh, very good, very yeah. excited about that stuff. I'm looking um, forward to returning that too through a uh, rewatch lens too. It's it's just interesting how. He didn't learn. Uh, to me, this book is is that lesson, right? Is like be careful of of authority. Be careful. Question that. Make sure you know where this stuff is coming from and why. Because it might just be that this person that you're hearing it from can't read. <laughs> like it's it's um, very interesting to me. They did a great job in in this episode. I think you know. Um, I don't know if this... I should have done this maybe after we had talked about mm. our final thoughts in the episode, and I apologize, mm. PMC. Maybe you can just... Because I left enough space, you can yeah, just cut yeah, this yeah. towards the end. Yeah. But what what did we think of episode five in the end? I think it's it's really functional. I mean, you know, it, it shows off a lot of the you know characters doing what they do. It introduces a new character. And I think I think what's really compelling about it is that... In episode one, it was really easy to sort of condemn authority because, like, the village chief and Gia is like, whatever, get rid of them, you know. But I think this really prompts you to say, like, authority is is bad, but the people who make all these decisions are human, and we're right. going to show you that. Yeah, it's a surprising amount of complexity to this episode too. I also think this episode could be showed in a in a vacuum, so to speak. You could only watch this episode and still get something out of it, yes. even though you might not know the characters as intimately as you should by this point. I think that if you were maybe not convinced by one, two, and three that the people who made Evangelion 
we're we're behind this show. I think five is much more of a convincing argument for that. Of like, ah, yes, okay. There's a bit more complexity. There's a bit more humanity in this episode. And asked me as a viewer, a lot of it asked me to think critically about these things. And I was going back and forth when I was taking my notes throughout. You know how critically I viewed Maggie and, and how. And how I bristle at authority, but do accept. I, I'm, I'm a hypocrite sometimes, because I do bristle at authority, but I also believe that authority needs to be instituted, or we're going to rip ourselves apart. Right. I mean, that's the thing that's interesting about this is how it forces you to sort of confront uh, how, an aspect of Kamina that that isn't necessarily like, v- like very very like tough for an audience to deal with. Right. That that Kamina has these blind spots when it comes to this. It doesn't ruin Kamina for us, but it's still like like little fracture points right um and it's interesting to sort of show in a subtle way where simone differs right and and this you know i if i was going to criticize anything i think that because simone right now is uh functioning in the role of like uh the precocious kid um i think there is a impulse as a western audience to sort of uh, be dismissive of that sort of archetype because of how cynical that archetype has traditionally been. Like you, you think about like Robin in, in, in Batman and Robin who was invented as a sort of way to get children more into Batman. Um, or you think about even then, if you go a step further, like, like Batwoman and Batgirl who were introduced because Batman and Robin were super gay <laughs> and they were trying to give them the case of the not gays. Right. Uh, what I'm talking about here is with this sort of character archetype, it's very easy to read that as something that's not meant to be a sincere sort of narrative device as much as it's a commercial device, right? Like, um, the reason we have five main characters in Gundam Wing is not a narrative reason. <laughs> it is a commercial reason. Are there narrative reasons in Gundam Wing? <laughs> like, listen, but the, do you, you understand? Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You understand what I'm saying though, right? Like, uh, like, um, in, <laughs> Power Rangers Turbo, one of the Power Rangers is a little kid in that season, and and lots of people hated that about that season because they they saw the cynical reasons, right? But Simone, you know, giving Simone the empathetic route, you almost sort of could take away from the episode like, oh, this is the like the weenie route, right? Or like the the annoying route, right? Right. right. Um, but I don't think you know. I think. With hindsight, it's easier to see really what the show is trying to to put up, which is that you know there are these there are these noble sort of uh, virtues. Uh, episode five is a return to form in a lot of ways. Like it, it brought us back to Gurren Lagann as a substantive yeah. piece, um, and the maybe we'll maintain. This it maybe episode six. Episode, episode six right? will be extremely substantive. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure episode yeah. six will have a lot of things to say. Don't want to throw out the show with the bath water. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, you're gonna. I guess what we're doing now is we're gonna have we're gonna have a dumb episode, and then we're gonna have a good up, and then we're gonna have a dumb episode, and we're That's gonna have the, a good up. Uh, the even and odd syndrome here. Yeah. Well, so um, I mean, get ready for some um, uh, Gynax cameos. Get, get ready for a lot of them. Uh, that's the main thing I remember. Oh, and, and um, dicks. There's going to be some dicks and butts in this one. And uh, this one coming up. I remember that as well. But we're really we're we're in an interesting place. We're still kind of in a fellowship wandering to the Moria sort of situation where the adventure has begun, but we're we're not really sure where we're going yet. 
but yeah, we're 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 in a good pace now. Uh, we got past the the roughest point of this early episode portion, I would say, which is episode four. I don't really think we're in for anything too too rough from here. I mean, there is a uh, there's a hill to get over after episodes eight and nine once we get past that. But uh, other than this fourth episode, there really shouldn't be any more like painful experiences. But uh, that makes me eager to to get to it with these next ones. Uh, I'm I'm pretty excited. Uh, I hope you guys are having as, as good a time as I am for, for going oh, I on. I know this was my show, but... Episode 5 definitely was... I, I wasn't really sold, I think, initially on this rewatch. I was like, yeah, maybe I still don't like this. And now I think I'm coming to art- articulate what I don't like about it while still getting into the things that I do like. And Episode 5 had a lot for me to like. If I am being honest, if I had to like construct a, theor- a PMC theory, mm. um, I think this time around... The thing that threw you off will not be as violently disruptive as it was previously, and I think you will be more interested in what it does afterwards yeah. than you previously were. Yeah, I think that's also true. And I yeah. think that would be enough of an angle yeah, that it will maintain. Definitely. Yeah, but in any case, if you're at all interested in what we were talking about there, you could tweet at us at Pod at Twitter, wherever that is. Uh, you could also send us an email, mechanationspod at gmail.com. Or, or you know, you could hop into PMC's stream at uh, Twitch TV. Yeah, and ping us while we're recording. Yeah. It's true. It's true. So, in any case, uh, uh, beyond this mysterious pause that there has been, definitely not because PMC has removed a whole bunch of stuff that he just explained to us. I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Steven Hero. PMC Trilogy. And you could text... You can touch us next time when we record some more podcasts. You can't, actually. Please That's not don't. how that... <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to touch this disease. <laughs> Please do not. 